there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T for C. If you're interested in comedy, journalism, or death, then this is the episode for you. (laughs) Because my next guest spent four years as a correspondent on Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and is currently a correspondent on CBS Sunday Morning and is the host of his own podcast entitled Mobituaries. But before I introduce you to the immensely talented Mo Rocca, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek inside the episodes and the guests we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. Just go to the Time for Coffee website at time the number four coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. And while you're on the homepage, I want to invite you to scroll down just a little bit where you're going to see a whole mess of boxes that are organized by career. So if you're interested in the theater, film, and arts, just click on that box. Or if it's becoming an author or going into publishing that floats your boat, click on that box. There are dozens and dozens of career options and hundreds of professionals to explore. And don't worry, our guest is not going to be taken away by the police. I'm sure that's just someone else in New York City who is in trouble right now. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is Mo Rocca, not Morocco like the country, Mo Rocca like the candy. Mo is a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, and he's the host of the super popular podcast, Mobituaries, which fans are going to be thrilled to know, is starting its second season in November. And Mo's new book, entitled Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving, is also going to be published in November 2019. In addition, Mo is the host of the CBS Saturday morning show, The Henry Ford's Innovation Nation, and he's a frequent panelist on NPR's hit weekly quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which happens to be my favorite NPR show outside of the news programming. Oh, yes, I am a big fan of that show. Mo also created and hosted The Cooking Channel's My Grandmother's Ravioli, which is so adorable. You can watch it online in which he learned to cook from grandmothers and grandfathers across the country. There's one clip in which he asks one grandmother if she can name all 43 of her grandchildren. Mo is standing there peeling an apple the whole time. It's really sweet. Okay, Mo spent Four seasons, as I'm sure you know, as a correspondent on Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and four seasons as a correspondent on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. On Broadway, he played Vice Principal Panch and the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And here we go, one final thing. In 2011, he won an Emmy as a writer for the 64th Annual Tony Awards, the immensely talented Mo Rocca. Welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. Thank you, Andrea. And my motorcade is also caffeinated. Oh, okay. so they're they're going <laughs> to turn the sirens down. Okay. Something very, very important, right? 
Yes, it, it always is, right? Always. I want you to know it has been so much fun preparing to speak with you. Usually the time that I spend researching my guests feels at times more like work. This was so much fun. In fact, I spent most of the day yesterday just listening to mobituaries and watching clips from CBS Sunday Morning and Innovation Nation and my grandmother's ravioli that I didn't really do too much preparation for my next guest who I'll be interviewing later today. So that's a little bit of a problem. But honest to God, you are such a talented guy. And I have to say, you are the first Time for Coffee guest that I've had the pleasure of interviewing who really seems to have managed to have built a career in which you are well compensated to use your comedic talents to learn about the people and the things that must really interest you and then share that information with others and have fun. Well, thank you, Andrea. You know, it's funny. I was in a, a bookstore, a used bookstore, a couple weekends ago, and there was a book that was called Six Word Obits. I think that was the title. And they asked all sorts of public figures if they could sum up what they hoped their obituary would be in six words. And the one I came up with for myself was, oh, uh, oh gosh, now I'm forgetting it. it okay, was, that's okay. I hope you found that interesting. That's what that that's that's how I would sum up what I hope. I mean, maybe it should be a six-word epitaph, but I hope you found that interesting is kind of what I hope people take from what I've produced in my career. Well, yes, I can say wholeheartedly Yes, the answer for me is that you have. And I also rather suspect that it takes an awful lot of hard work to do what you're doing right now, Mo, and to get where you are right now. Well, it does because there was no sort of plan or career, a specific career track for what I've ended up doing. I think that it just takes a lot of work to develop a voice to find and develop a voice. And it's a lifelong project. Let's, and it also feels like a struggle at times, but it's been an, ex, an exciting and rewarding one. But yeah, figuring out how to sound like myself, and boy, I know that sounds kind of new agey, and I'm not really a new agey person, but figuring out how to sound like myself and what that means has been a, a journey. So that's what you mean when you say finding your voice, how to be authentically you in your written and spoken interactions with your various audiences. Oh, I think so. And, you know, early on I did, when I was on The Daily Show, I got asked by a lot of colleges to come speak and I would do a show sort of a stand-up show. I used PowerPoint a lot, like slide presentations. Now I feel like is what I was doing is I, I could turn into a TED Talk, but TED Talks didn't exist then. But I had been all around the country visiting the homes and grave sites of different presidents, usually the oddball presidents that no one remembers anymore. And it was sort of a funny little slideshow of me in front of all these different tombstones. Obviously, there's a theme here, but but with selfies, before everyone was doing selfies, so I was using an actual old-style camera, like Panasonic or something. And I would go to these big schools, a lot of them in the middle of the country, and I learned that what I was, 20 minutes of this show that I was doing was kind of 
my tour through all these different historic sites and telling little quips and even stories and you know for each slide and that the audience was engaged i would say sometimes even riveted and i kind of learned a lesson there that if i'm really interested and passionate about something the audience will be too none of those kids at purdue or wherever before they walked in that auditorium if i had if somebody had said oh are you interested in going to a show that a big chunk of which is going to be about the homes and grave sites of past obscure presidents i think most of them would have said I'm not going in there. But by the end, they were interested in it. So that told me something early on to double down on what is interesting to me to follow where my curiosity leads. And that that would hopefully take me to a good place. You mentioned in our Espresso Shots episode, and our young listeners should just check out show notes to see if that episode has already dropped, that when you were in your 20s, was it your mid-20s, mm-hmm. Mo? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You bought a one-way plane ticket to Ohio, and you rented a car when you got there. Was it Ohio or Indiana? So I bought a one-way U.S. Airways ticket to Indianapolis, which is where the home of Benjamin Harrison, our 23rd president, he's the one wedged inside of the Grover Cleveland sandwich. You know, Grover Cleveland is the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms. So Benjamin Harrison's in the middle there. But Benjamin Harrison has a home in Indianapolis on Delaware Avenue in the old North Side Historic District. And I bought a plane ticket to go there because I was simply curious about who works at the Benjamin Harrison House. I grew up in Washington, D.C., going to Mount Vernon, driving down into Virginia to Monticello. I'd been to Hyde Park where FDR was his estate. You know, when you show up at Hyde Park, you're there to see Hyde Park. And the people who work there know that. If you're stopping at the Benjamin Harrison house, there's a better than even chance you're there to use the bathroom. I mean, and and so, 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 so something told me that the docents, that the tour guides that work there had to really put on a show to engage the people that came there so that they would care about Benjamin Harrison. And when I went there, indeed, there was a woman named Wanda Wheeler. She was 75 years old. She'd been volunteering at the Benjamin Harrison house in Indianapolis for 22 years, she's not getting paid. She put on a long Victorian gown and she gave tours to the place. I went on a tour with a group of second graders who happened to be there. And I'm telling you, Andrea, by the end of that tour, we wanted to sandblast Mount Rushmore and replace it with Benjamin Harrison, who was in fact a kind of lame president, kind of mediocre. But the point is, is that she threw herself into it and she made you care. And he was indeed president. He's worth knowing about. And it is, by the way, a beautiful home. I advise everyone to go there. It's a really great historic site with something like over 80% original artifacts. But I went from there, I rented a car and I went to the home of Rutherford B. Hayes in Fremont, Ohio, the home of James Garfield in Menor, Ohio. I made my way to Buffalo. I drove to Buffalo to the home of Millard Fillmore. And on that same journey in Ohio, back in Ohio, I went to Marion, Ohio, to the home of Warren G. Harding, who is one of our worst presidents. And there was something kind of funny about, you know, talking to a docent at the home of one of the worst presidents. I remember the guy there, I can't remember his name right now. But remember, he said, he sort of sighed and went, <sighs> look, I know he wasn't a great president, but we've got some really interesting artifacts here. And so, and, and I also met there a man named 
Craig Shermer, who's passed on now, who was so into Florence Harding, the first lady, that he dressed up as her to give tours of the house. And I've talked about that in the Espresso Shots episode, as you pointed out. But that trip was really fundamental for me because when I got on that plane, I didn't know what I was going to do with what I hoped to find. I just was curious and something in me, a little voice was trying to, and I luckily I could hear, and I don't have great hearing, but luckily I could hear that little voice saying, go and do this thing. And it ended up getting me my job on The Daily Show, job television. Yes. It really did. I I totally believe that. And look what else it's led to. Completely. It's led to mobituaries. It's led to your new book. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you yep. ever think that? That's 25 years ago. That's right. It's um, it's it's funny, isn't it? I didn't know where it would lead. I knew that this interest I had in history went pretty deep. And, you know, history is stories, right? So I didn't realize at the time how that could play out. One thing that's been very funny for me is recently, I, I like on CBS Sunday Morning doing stories about history. I did a story not long ago about Andrew Johnson, who was the 17th president, the really terrible president after Lincoln was assassinated. He's from Greenville, Tennessee, in eastern Tennessee. I went and did this Sunday morning story almost exactly 20 years to the day after I did a story about Andrew Johnson for The Daily Show. It was, in fact, my very first piece on The Daily Show, the the one that gave me, that started my career in television. And it was interesting looking at the pieces side by side. And I was happy with what I saw, that I had matured (laughs) quite literally, but also the storytelling was better. It was deeper. It's obviously a very different kind of show, but it sort of felt like a neat little way to measure myself. How cool is that? So take us inside your process for CBS Sunday Morning, Mo. You mentioned the Andrew Johnson piece. How did you make that piece interesting, compelling, a word that you use in our espresso shots that you think is more important than saying communicating with your audience is engagement with your audience? How did you engage your audience over one of our worst presidents? Well, we went to Greenville, Tennessee. The first thing is I think I'd like to think that my my interest in the topic helped fuel it. I think it was apparent. It had been my pitch. I was really trying to understand why he was such what made him such a bad president, as well as tell his life story, which sort of factors into it. He had a lot of resentments. He was really thin skinned took things very, very personally. And I think trying to answer that bigger question about what made him a bad president, there's obviously, I'm not being glib here, there's a lot of interest in the presidency in the office right now, a lot of division about this, a lot of debate. People feel very strongly about the current president. And so I think rather than feeling like, oh, here's a historical curiosity. Here's this interesting random thing that happened that we intentionally or I intentionally pitched this right now because I think people feel very passionately right now about what they want and don't want in a president. And I think that's what made it more than just, and I hate to say just a history lesson because a history lesson is always good, but made it more than, oh, isn't that interesting? Made it feel relevant. For instance, we're going to do 
and this is a more obvious hook, but I've done a piece on Herbert Hoover, and he's also in my book because I'm there's something heartbreaking about somebody, and this is the case with Herbert Hoover, who was known as the great humanitarian before he entered the Oval Office, who had this extraordinary life, saved by most estimates tens of millions of people from starvation worldwide through all the good works he did before and then some after his time in office. But his time in office coincided with the stock market crash in 1929. And he was blamed mostly unjustly, of course, for the Great Depression. And it didn't matter. Everything else was sort of preseason ball. It just kind of it didn't count in as as far as public perception. And that's a piece that's going to air around the 90th anniversary of the stock market crash. That's a more obvious hook. Got it. Okay. So what Is it for those who may think that they want to get into television news, how do you go about reporting on your stories and finding the best people to interview to engage your viewers? Well, in the case of CBS Sunday Morning, because of the nature of the show, I feel fortunate. I don't love the word lucky. I'm not a big fan of, even though I know luck is a real thing, I think that luck sometimes... I'd rather take responsibility for the the good and the bad things that have happened and, and, not, and not say it has all that much to do with luck. But I will say that I'm fortunate to work on a show that allows me to a really, to a shocking degree to indulge my curiosity. I can go down the hall to my executive producer here, who is wonderful, and say, I'm interested in liverwurst. And he'll more likely than not say, all right, if you're really interested in it, go do a piece. So it feels like going back to college and taking only electives, <laughs> which I wish I had done the first time. Right. You know, So it could be one week, the history of the pencil, the next week, the career of Susan Lucci, the next week after that, a profile on cabaret singer Marilyn May who's still still going strong at, I think she's 91 now. She's really extraordinary. So that's kind of my pitching process is really, I try to read a lot and keep my eyes and ears open for things that kind of make me feel warm in my stomach (laughs) that make me, that, that kind of appeal to me in a way that I think I can bring something to it. I'm more interested in stories that are more warm than kind of, cold and provocative. That's just sort of maybe where I am right now as a person. And and I realize that's an indulgence that a lot of people aren't given. But I feel like I'm a good fit for this show and that it appreciates those kinds of stories. I hope I'm answering your question. Um, I mean, in terms of finding the people that are going to be the characters. Well, I look for... I look for what I call undervalued stocks. There are people whose I look for somebody, and it can be a famous person, who the audience, in the case of, if it's a famous person, I look for a famous person that will make the audience go, oh my gosh, I forgot how interested I am in her. Or, boy, I, I didn't really realize how much more there was to his story. So there's that. And then, of course, it's great to find somebody who is not famous, who is going to going to rivet people. I mean, I was particularly proud of a piece that I did on a man named Peter LaSalle. I heard about him through a friend. Peter LaSalle was an executive producer for Arthur Godfrey, for Johnny Carson, for David Letterman, for Craig Ferguson, for Tom Snyder. I mean, this is a person who among the cognoscenti of, of comedy was a name, but no one else knew his name. He also was a classmate of Anne Frank's. 
He had actually had grown up in Holland. I mean, that's immediately when you hear he was a classmate of Anne Frank's, it seems otherworldly. I mean, it's just, you go, whoa. And so he had never done a television sit down. I think he had done maybe for the television academy, maybe had done an interview for their archives. But I was proud that I reached out to him and earned his trust. And we did a piece together. And I think it turned out really well. I think I wanted to see if there was any connection between, and there certainly was, between what he'd gone through as a child. He survived two different concentration camps and kind of the the coping skills, to put it mildly, that came to bear later in life in his career and, and and his life moving forward. So that was a story I was proud to tell. Wow. Well, I'll have to make sure to include a link to it in our show notes. Yeah. So, Mo, a few minutes ago, you mentioned how you have worked over the years to develop your own voice in your storytelling. What advice do you have for our young listeners about how they might go about developing their own voices? Well, I think it depends if you're aspiring more to perform or to write. And if you're aspiring to perform, you're also aspiring to write because you can't perform, I don't think, effectively if you're not writing your own material. And I'm not, I should I should say, I'm not a, an experienced stand-up comedian. I've done hosting, I've told jokes, certainly, but I've never done really the grand task of, of doing a 60-minute you know, stand-up show. And that's really, that's the mountaintop right there. So I really admire people who do that. But I think it's if you're performing and you're doing comedy is essential that you tell jokes that you think are funny, not jokes that other people say are funny that you don't really get or that don't really appeal to you. I think it's important just as a practical matter, because if you tell a joke that you've been assured is funny and will land with an audience, but you yourself don't think is funny, it won't be funny. But I also think it's essential on a spiritual level. It's very important to write material that's exciting. We're not even just talking about comedy here, but that's exciting and interesting to you to begin developing that muscle of the voice. I think it's really, really important. So a bit of an abstraction for me to talk about this as for an aspiring journalist, because I suppose, I mean, would I advise people who aren't yet on camera or producing for a news show to just write pieces on the side? I suppose so. I, I, that would, yeah, that, certain, that certainly would help. But I think in comedy, you really, you can find a stage. There are open mics. You can do that. You can go to a place like Upright Citizens Brigade, other venues, and you can find a way to perform and try out material. But it is important that that material be stuff that you are excited about. I cannot emphasize that enough. Okay. So let's pivot. You said that's a very common word people are using, which is yeah. really crushing my soul right now because I use it all the time and I kind of felt like <laughs> no. it was it was a somewhat it. fresh term. But no, let's move <laughs> over to your podcast, Mobituaries. Would you mind sharing with our listeners what Mobituaries is about and where you got the idea for it? Mobituaries is... A trip. It's my version of an obituary is an appreciation for someone who didn't get the send off that he or she deserved when they died or may not have gotten any send off at all. It could be it could be somebody famous like Sammy Davis Jr. who 
I believe deserves a reevaluation, a fresh look, because he was the greatest entertainer, along with Judy Garland of the 20th century. It could be somebody who was at one point wildly famous, like Vaughn Meter, the who was a household name when he was the President John F. Kennedy impersonator, whose career died. And that was that obituary episode and chapter in the book is really about the death of a career. It could be somebody who I call a forgotten forerunner, like Moses Fleetwood Walker, who 63 years before Jackie Robinson broke the color line, was really the first black man to play Major League Baseball, what passed for Major League Baseball back then. And he's in fact, is gaining more and more acknowledgement by Major League Baseball. It could be a thing like the station wagon. The last station wagon rolled off the assembly line in 2011. I have a chapter in the book about that. It could be a belief in dragons in 1735. Carl Linnaeus, who I remember from AP Bio, he says proudly, even smugly, because I love AP Bio and my taxonomies, my taxonomic tables. But in 1735, up until that point, people believed dragons were real. And and Carl Linnaeus, a Swedish botanist, went to an exhibit of a hydra, seven-headed hydra in Hamburg and said, this thing isn't real. And it shook Europe. They, you know, millennia, for millennia, people had believed that dragons were real. So that's the premise of mobituaries. And I hasten to add, at the behest of my publisher, that about 80% of the book is all new material, all new stories. I just had to get that in there. But one of the creative lessons I learned from this, and it went into the whole formulation of this idea, a friend of mine who's himself a terrific podcaster named Ian Chillag, who's also a producer on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, said to me when I was coming up with this idea, I said, you know, I'm, I said, I almost feel guilty that these are really profiles. These are profiles of things I'm interested in. This really, this series isn't this series could accommodate almost everything. And I, and weirdly, I almost felt guilty about that. It almost felt like a cheat. And he looked at me and he said, Mo, any good podcast idea is an excuse to talk about anything. And I think that there's a really deep truth in that. I think any truly great creative idea can accommodate an astonishing range of things. I think something – I think the trick is making it specific in tone and in voice and in point of view. But – if there were only 10 or 20 things I could talk about in mobituaries, then it would be a flawed idea. Mm, yeah. There are endless possibilities out there. For sure. Me. Yeah. One of the episodes I listened to, in addition to the Sammy Davis Jr. one, which actually inspired me to then go on YouTube and watch that one video in particular in which he sings Mr. Bojangles, which was- right amazing. It was when he performed it in Paris. But right. another episode I listened to was about actress Audrey Hepburn. Right. And one of the many things I loved about it, Mo, was how it began with you standing outside New York City's Macy's at Herald Square. And you shared with your listeners that you had worked in Macy's as your first job when you moved to New York City when you were 23. And you shared that you'd work behind the fragrance counter for Chanel. And I actually had a number of thoughts when I listened to you describe that. One of which was, do all really good humorists have to work in Macy's when they're in their <laughs> 20s? Did you think of David Sedaris? Yes, who started working there as one of Santa's elves. 
I know. And, and, you know, I have to say that I have such fond memories of reading Barrel Fever, which I think was his first book, which was a collection of stories, including the Santa Land Diaries, uh, right? I think that's what it was, that, that series of stories was called. And I remember I was living in Dallas at the time, and I would double over with laughter. And it's such a great feeling. He's so funny. Yeah, my, my experience at Macy's was much less wacky, but I suppose no less influential in my own career. Yeah, I was working there and celebrities would come through. I remember Jesse Norman came through and she was so regal, the opera singer. And Nancy Wilson, who only passed away last year, who was such a wonderful singer, a jazz singer of standards. And I remember I getting her CDs after seeing her there because I didn't know who she was. But when Audrey Hepburn came by my counter, it really was magical. And And then I remember a few months later, and back then when you're so young, time moves much more slowly. So at that point, it seemed like many years later, but it was only eight months later that she died. And I do remember walking by a kiosk on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and seeing the USA Today from the next day. And Bill Clinton's first inauguration dominated the front page of January 21st, I guess, the next day, 1993. And then the little reefer box, the little what's inside box at the bottom of the front page was Audrey Hepburn is dead. And I do remember standing there as a 23-year-old and thinking, boy, that's what a strange twist of fate, this great screen icon. The news of her death is really overshadowed today. And I didn't think much of it. But then later on, when this whole project, Mobituaries, began, I thought, I want to bring personal spins to each of these stories. And Audrey Hepburn, I've noticed over the years, she trends on Twitter. There's She has this hold of her people, and she's been gone for a quarter century. And other stars that were bigger than she was, Ingrid Bergman, Catherine Hepburn, don't have the same hold on people that Audrey Hepburn has. And so it seemed like a great combination of elements, my own personal kind of quote-unquote experience with her and the strange coincidence of her death on the day of Bill Clinton's inauguration and this this question, why does she have a hold over the imagination? I think it's a wonderful example of what you were talking about again in the Espresso Shots episode regarding the kinds of useful skills that you look for in the young people you hire. And you were talking about, in essence, creativity and coming up with new ideas in some instances for show opens or show closes, which you really want a great hook, and you would like a personal hook for that. And this was just a classically perfect. I mean, you were standing outside, it was audio, but you were talking about it, and then you went inside, and I couldn't believe that some of your former colleagues were still there working behind the counter at Chanel. But let me ask you, because I think that this is another important point for our young listeners. You don't always have to have the super flashy, glamorous jobs that will help to influence and build skills that will be useful to you later in your life. I mean, with all due respect, you had a college degree. You had graduated from Harvard and there you were working in Macy's, granted for a great fragrance for Chanel. But why was it that you picked that job to start out in when you were there? Well, great question. And I have to say there was a little part of me that worried that I was falling short, squandering my education, like what was I doing working at Chanel? 
And I might have even been a little bit embarrassed that I run into somebody just a little bit, not much. That wasn't a big part of it, but a little bit. I think that, oh, is somebody, a classmate going to come in and say, what are you doing? Well, the truth is at the, at, at the time, and by the way, I just said the truth is, usually when people say the truth is, they're about to lie. So let's take that out. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, um, but but I, I was auditioning as an actor at the time and I needed a survival job and a job with some flexibility. So that, it, it, that made the most sense. I would, it was that. And then other times I tempt things that had flexible hours. So, but look, get the great experience I had there. And I also think working retail is just a great experience anyway for developing life skills. So that's sort of what went into that job. You know, I do have one thing I want to say, but lest I forget that made, maybe I should have said in the espresso shots interview, which is that young people also, I think it, it's, it's helpful to remember that an idea, a topic, almost any topic can be made interesting. And I know that sounds so generic, but it's it may seem like the land is parched. Go with me on this metaphor, but it may be end in disaster. But the land may seem parched. There may seem like there's nothing there. But if you drill enough, you will strike oil. You there it's there. It's there. I'm not talking about fracking. We're not doing that. But like or so or maybe we're looking for water. We're looking for something and it doesn't seem like it's there. It will be there. So to not give up stick-to-itiveness, a word that I wish autocorrect recognized, <laughs> is so important. Yes. It's old-fashioned word, but you will find it. I'm working with a producer right now on a obituaries episode about Laura Branigan. And the hook for it, the, in the 1980s singer of the hit Gloria and other songs, a terrific talent who died way too young. And, you know, this producer and I are working on this. And the more we dig, the more we're finding interesting things about her. There is a story there. Everyone has a story. And I'm really hopeful that it's going to be a really compelling episode. I'm pretty confident of it. But I don't want young people to get discouraged and say, oh, if something doesn't seem interesting in the first hour of Google searches, there's nothing there. You will find something. Let me tell you, I mentioned this episode, this chapter in my book about dragons. I found that story in a single parenthetical, one sentence in a biography about Thomas Paine. There's a chapter about Thomas Paine. So I was working my way through Craig Nelson's epic biography of Thomas Paine, and one parenthetical happened to mention Carl Linnaeus, a name that sort of you know piqued my interest because I remembered high school biology, who went to an exhibit in 1735 and disproved dragons. And that was one sentence, and it's now become a chapter in my book. So you will find little threads. So just keep at it. So if your boss says, let's do a three-hour epic on Jell-O, <laughs> like, like, and you go, oh, my God, what am I going to do with that? There's nothing there. We can't, or, or let's explore doing a three-hour epic on Jell-O. And you think, oh, this is, this is going to end in disaster. Not, there's not going to be anything here. If you dig deep enough, you will find the epic, thrilling Ben-Hur version of the history of Jell-O. Well, I got one for you because the first story that I ever covered as a cub reporter at a member station of National Public Radio in Columbia, South Carolina, was how to get your car inspected. Oh, and wow. Mo, I don't think I could have come up with an epic for that one. And in fact, as I walked out the door, there I had been hired as my first job. I'm already feeling nervous. They hand me one of those old-fashioned, I think it was Morant's recorders, those big uh -huh. black recorders. And I said to my news director, 
I press play and record? <laughs> yes. That just instills confidence in him, I'm sure. Yes. But no, I, I think that is really important advice. I still think it would have been hard to turn getting your car inspected. You would have been able to turn that into a much more amusing story than I did. I think I did that like straight, you go, you know, you get your ticket, you wait in line and you say thank you or pay your 15 bucks and say thank you. But I'm sure you could have made that so much more entertaining than what I did. I would have put on a sleeveless t-shirt, a la sort of shanana and kind of wheeled myself and revealed myself coming out from underneath the car with the oil all over my face. No, I don't know. it was radio. It was radio. Ah, there you go. All right. This is a tough one. Yes. Just give me a couple of hours and I'll get back to you. I know. Speaking of which, I did really enjoy seeing you in the wife beater tank top Ah. with one of the other grandfathers that you interviewed. From Philly. Oh, my God. That was awesome. And then you guys went out to get the best cheesesteaks. That's right. We did. We went out to get the best cheesesteaks. I loved doing that show so much. And to get your steak wit. Yes. That's very good. (laughs) Okay. So you mentioned your book, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving, and the fact that the book is very different from the podcast. What will our readers find when they buy a copy? Well, they'll find a variety of stories of, of appreciations, mobituaries for everything from Frederick the Great of Prussia to Farrah Fawcett to the station wagon to a series called Reputation Assassination, the depths of reputations. There's a lot of debate over the demerits and I suppose merits, <laughs> some would say, of cancel culture, this idea of, you know, one of the the phenomena that happens online with Twitter and social media of somebody saying something and sometimes it's truly awful and sometimes it's only maybe awful and sometimes it's actually not awful at all and and reputations are are at stake suddenly. And I in this case there were three different their essays on three different reputations that were torpedoed in the past. One is a story about Giacomo Meyerbeer, who is really the inventor, the innovator behind grand opera in the 19th century. And Meyerbeer is Jewish. And Richard Wagner, who went on, of course, to write The Ring Cycle, a great opera composer, wrote an essay called Jewishness in Music, a virulently anti-Semitic essay that almost single-handedly crippled Meyerbeer's career, basically writing that Jews were incapable of writing truly European music was the the premise of it. And also in that section, Reputation Assassination, the reputation of a British writer named Arnold Bennett, who was once the most popular novelist in England, and the reputation of disco. So these stories are a a little more nuanced than than they may sound, because in a couple of those cases, the reputations did deserve to be (laughs) tarnished maybe a little bit. By the end, disco, I think, was was, you know, kind of needed to be put out of its misery once you got to the Ethel Merman disco album. (laughs) And believe me, I love Ethel Merman. Don't get me wrong. I really do. I love Ethel Merman when she's singing Irving Berlin, not when she's doing disco. There are essays about the death of medieval medicine, bloodletting, astrology, scrying, which is the word. And I didn't know it until I wrote this book. Scrying is when mirror, mirror on the wall, when you look in a mirror and the medieval belief that 
you could have wishes granted and communicate with the dead through through a looking glass. So that's some of it. And listen, a, a great obituary writers will say this, that a good obituary is about the life of something, not the death of something. So these are really about the lives of different of different things. Fantastic. And again, it's going to be in the bookstores in November 2019. Yeah. Mo, you mentioned that when you graduated from college, you came to New York. Was that immediately after you graduated? Is that when you were trying to be an actor or you were starting out as an actor? No. What I did is as soon as I left college, I went to Japan to study kabuki, which is traditional Japanese theater. And I'd love to say that that was a great passion of mine. I think it was one of those things where I thought, well, when will I ever have an opportunity to do something as wacky as this? My father had a friend, a business associate, and she invited me to Japan to spend a few months. And Japan was very, very expensive, especially back then. So I taught English on the side to make money. And then I studied kabuki. And then I really had to make a choice about whether I would try to have a career not in kabuki, but in Japan, because there are Westerners that certainly work in enter entertainment there. And it was a really fundamental choice because I think there was a part of me that was scared and thought, no, I don't want to say scared. That's, that's, that's overstating the case. But there was a part of me that thought, whoa, well, I stand a better shot of kind of making it as a performer, as an entertainer in Japan in this kind of niche environment than if I have to sort of compete with, with the big boys and girls back in the United States. And my father sort of gently advised me that that kind of avoidance wasn't the best, soundest kind of strategy for living life. And so I, you know, I, I had been interested in musicals and my dream early on had been to be on Broadway, which I eventually was. But anyway, I, I left Japan. It had been a cool experience. And I came back to the United States. I came back and I worked as a waiter in, in Washington, D.C. at two different restaurants at the same time to earn the money to move to New York. Got it. So when did you get into your children's series writing? So I was working as an actor. I did, as you mentioned, the Southeast Asian tour of the musical Greece. I then did a musical at Paper Mill Playhouse, a very respected regional house in New Jersey, doing South Pacific there. And then a dear friend of mine was producing a show called Wishbone on PBS. And, and I was 25 at the time. And she said, look, I'm offering you a job as a writer on this PBS series. Beautifully produced show. I mean, I'm very proud to have worked on it. But, you know, I don't know that she was explicit in stating this, but I understood it. You know, it was fun to live in New York, but this job was a good job and a great opportunity and it would mean moving to the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, a place I'd never lived before, a place I wasn't eager to live, but a job that was a great opportunity. And one of my brothers had been a journalist, had been writing at the Washington Post doing college sports. And I remembered him saying, and I think this was true pretty much for every kind of reporter that at a place like the Washington Post, to become a staff writer, you know, you, you couldn't jump from being a part-timer to a staff writer. You had to go from being a part-timer at a place like the Washington Post to being a staff writer in a secondary market. And then you could get back to maybe to being a staff writer, become, you know, you know what I'm saying, to jump, sure. to jump up like that. So that I did view it as, as a lifestyle sacrifice. And I, and I viewed it that way at the time. I said to myself, if I wanted a real career, it's going to mean living in a place that I don't want to live. And, you know, that's just something I'm going to have to do. And I'm glad that I made that choice. It was an amazing job. 
And you were in that genre for how many years? For about two and a half years, two and a half, three years. So I worked on that show for about a year and a half. And the same friend who hired me for that eventually hired me to work on a show on Nickelodeon. And I loved writing for, for children, especially with Wishbone. It was storytelling boot camp. It was, it's, it's the toolbox. Quite honestly, I think that I may go back to more than any other. Honestly, of all the jobs I've had, and I've had so many, that's the toolbox I always go back to. Because the premise of the show was it start a dog. It was a live action show about a Jack Russell Terrier who has adventures in his neighborhood, but the adventures parallel thematically different classic novels. And so the show you see through the dog's eyes shift between his contemporary experience and then his fantasy life where he's the hero of classic novels that parallel what's happening in his contemporary life. So what it meant as a writer was taking some of the greatest stories ever told and distilling them for a six to 11 year old through the eyes of a dog. And it sounds wacky, and it was, but I learned I learned more about the mechanics of storytelling through that than anything else I've ever done. I mean, it's like kind of like the movie Sherman and Peabody. Which I was long obsessed with and, and always had fantasies. And I don't know if this is going to weird you out, Andrea, but this is true. I had fantasies and talked to people about this, about rebooting Sherman and Peabody with Mia Sherman and your father is Mr. Peabody. Really? I'm not kidding you. I that always thought that your father would be adorable. perfect. Oh my God. Yes. And he also has a really good sense of humor. So why not? That would not weird me out at all. Mo, let's flashback, not quite as far back as Sherman and Peabody, but to when you were at Harvard, you graduated in 1991 as an English major. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I did not. And, you know, I, I had seen the movie The Killing Fields as a teenager. And I said to myself, do I want to be the character of the journalist, or do I want to be the actor playing the journalist? <laughs> I really did. I couldn't tell if I wanted to be in the land of make-believe or in the real world. I feel like I've sort of combined the two. But in any case, I did not know that. And, when, and, and my experience in college, especially writing, acting in, and being president of the Hasty Pudding Show, was an extraordinary experience, really creatively fulfilling and fun. A lot of the time, you know, I strive to remember what that felt like. And when I'm in a job, there are times when I have sort of a, a feeling, kind of a good tingly feeling, and I go, oh, right, that's that feeling of what it was like to put on a show. And it can't be like that all the time, but that kind of fun, that's a very important thing that I try to reconnect with. But I had a know-it-all friend, a good friend of mine, a total know-it-all. And when I moved to New York, eventually, to you know, audition for plays and musicals, this friend said to me, this is the easy way out. He said, you shouldn't be doing this. You you need to write your way. You need to create your, your own roles. This is standing in long lines to read a few lines for a casting director is a passive way to do this. A lot of actors would beg to differ and would, would maybe even be insulted by that. But he was right. That wasn't the right thing for me. That was too much of um, a prescribed kind of route that where, you know, you look back then looking in the trades and backstage every Thursday morning, the magazine that would newspaper that would have the different auditions and locations and times. But that wasn't the right thing for me. And, you know, I needed to do the heavier lift, which was really sit down and think, figure out 
what kinds of roles and uh, I needed to create for myself. And that's what I feel I've done. That's what pitching is about, I think. Absolutely. So Mo, could you share a time with our young listeners when you really struggled professionally? Maybe it was while you were trying to become an actor on Broadway. It may have been when you tried to segue from children's writing into writing for adults. But the important part here is how you persevered and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. Okay, I'm trying to choose <laughs> right now. So, you know, I think I I struggled when I first came to CBS Sunday Morning because I was coming from a place, my last job had been more sort of capital C comedy. And I remember I thought that every piece I did had to be funny and I had to make everything funny. And Luckily, I work for a guy who is so great, and I'm not I'm not sucking up here because I just signed a, I, I just signed a new contract. So yes, exactly. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> right? Exactly. It doesn't matter. And he said, he said what a shrink had said to me once. Also, a shrink that I had once said, "It's okay to not always be funny. It's okay to just be smart." And that sounds that sounds like sort of a humble brag there, but I think it was. It took an adjustment. And it was ultimately freeing to kind of say, like, sometimes a story, every story will be different and some will have more humor and some will have less humor. But I think that was definitely an adjustment. So there, there was that. I also had, I had a hard time when I first left The Daily Show. I did a special. I hadn't quite left The Daily Show. I was doing it on the side. I did a special court TV and it got disastrous reviews and it deserved to. It got terrible reviews and that was difficult. That was, it was just very embarrassing. And I learned enough for an hour long offshoot conversation that we can have about, <laughs> um, and I'm happy to record it at some point, but, uh, but ab- about what I learned from that, I learned a lot. And I, and I will say that getting kicked in the teeth, even at the time I said to myself, hopefully, and it turned out to be true that, that there was value in it. And value in it happening at a young age, I think probably more value than happening much later. Yeah. And I have to say, I think even the most humiliating and embarrassing experiences, and trust me, I've had enough that it would probably be a 10-year-long series, that those experiences oftentimes have silver linings. Yeah. They may not see at the time. And truthfully, I didn't know about the court. TV special that you had. And gosh, look how much you've accomplished since then. Right. Well, thank you. No, I, I appreciate that. And I love that you didn't know about it. <laughs> you know, the, um, <laughs> that, that tells you something. Well, it's funny, you know, you know, oftentimes I guess hard to keep this stuff in perspective, but no, I, I definitely, I, I, I trusted that there was a silver lining at the time and there was, I mean, I can in general tell you that one thing I learned is, you know, that to work on projects that, Certainly, you bet ahead of time. You know, you have to, there's, you're always going to have to trust to some extent, but you also have to vet things as much as you can. But also to be involved, and this goes for myself, and to be focused on content. Look, I think marketing is really important. You don't want to do something that no one ends up seeing. Of course, you don't want that. You don't want that. I don't, I don't want to do something for an audience of three that was really meant for a much larger audience. 
it doesn't have value. It doesn't have as much value. It has still has some, but it doesn't have as much value if it's not consumed. But it's really important that the focus, myself included, be on the content, not on the marketing until it's time to market it. Okay, fair enough. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself, Mo? Well, I don't regret the backseat that my academics oftentimes took to my extracurriculars because my extracurriculars were very very valuable. And I was very rigorous in, in them. I wasn't you know, sitting around staring at a wall in my dorm room. I was so the fact that, for instance, I didn't write a thesis, which I always felt a little bit bad about, but I made up for by writing a book. But, you know, that wasn't because I was sort of lollygagging or just, you know, I was going to use Plain another expression. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, that wasn't the, that wasn't the case. I would, however, have probably chosen a different concentration. I would have done, and not necessarily history, because history, at least at Harvard at the time, was kind of a default major in the way that English was. So I would have done something. I would have done something a little more structured and rigorous. And I think I know nothing about economics. It's I, I wouldn't have been an econ major because I think actually that really is. I think that was pretty hard. I'm embarrassed. It, I, it's bad that I didn't take Ec Ten, which was our big intro to economics course, but I would have been a government major because I think it combined, my understanding is it combined history, something I really care about, but learning about the structures of government and it was much, it was more rigorous. So I would have done something with a little more structure. Yeah. Okay. Mo, I want to thank you so much for this marathon Time for Coffee session today with me and the Time for Coffee community. Mo's podcast is called Mobituaries. The second season starts November 2019. And his new book is entitled Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving, also out in November 2019. Thank you so, so much and continued best wishes for success with the podcast and the book. Thank you very much, Andrea. Great talking to you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.